Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear, and welcome to Brains Bite Back. From brain surgery to the simplest of procedures, receiving surgery is very rarely an experience that people look forward to. Well, except for perhaps plastic surgery. But like most areas of our modern lives, technology and AI stands to dramatically change this space. In this episode, you will learn how AI is improving surgeries, what role it plays, and what we can expect from it in the future. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Andrew Berkeley, co-founder of Perimeter Medical, a Canadian company that develops, patents, and commercializes advanced surgical imaging tools that allow surgeons, radiologists, and pathologists to better assess microscopic tissue structures during a surgical procedure. And for our good news feature, we have a story on Trump and NASA. Disclosure, this episode includes a client of an Espacio portfolio company. Hey. Hello. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing good. Where where are you located? So I am in Colombia. So I am I'm based in Medellin. I had a I had a friend that lived in uh, Bogota for for a few years, many years ago, and he really enjoyed it down there. Yeah. It's quite funny because um actually the, the two cities are quite different in the sense that here it's very hot it's very sunny and it's almost like it's called the city of eternal spring whereas bogota is more like rainy it reminds me of like what i hear of like london being but at the same time it can be very hot it's like very polar opposites i've only spent a short amount of time there but um it's supposed to be like the real hub it's supposed to be where like all the main stuff's going on but i can't i can't tear myself away from the good weather so yeah um i'm really interested to hear about like uh, obviously how you went from ireland to uk and canada but i think we'll leave that towards the end because first i'd love it if you could introduce yourself if you could just tell our listeners your name and uh, yeah a little bit about your background in ai and surgery okay so my name is andrew berkeley i am a optical electronic engineer i studied engineering in dublin for many years and then i did a master's program in the united kingdom in university of hull at the time uh, optical electronics uh, were becoming very popular when i say optical electronics i mean solar technologies and telecommunications and, and medical lasers and devices so after graduating being in the uk i met a Canadian girl who dragged me over to Canada and I started working in the medical device industry, predominantly in the biophotonics space. And when I say biophotonics, I mean using light-based technologies for medical applications. Back in 2013, I was one of the founders of a company called Perimeter Medical, and we're developing an, an optical imaging technology for the surgical suite. And in parallel with the imaging hardware, we are developing uh, AI algorithms that will allow surgeons to be more efficient and more accurate during uh, oncology particularly breast surgeries. What was the inspiration for starting Perimeter Medical? Um, Perimeter Medical, the actual technology is called OTIS, so it's Optical Tissue Imaging System. We incubated the technology in a, in a different company called Tornado Medical. And Tornado Medical was founded by a couple of radiologists who had a lot of experience in developing imaging technologies in the breast space. There's a very well-known problem in breast cancer surgery, and that is a very high repeat surgery rate. Approximately one in four women who have breast cancer surgery need to come back for 
a second surgery because the surgeon is more or less blinded at the time of removing surgery. And a lot of time they leave cancer behind and they, they don't discover this until about a week or sometimes even two weeks afterwards when the tissue has gone to a laboratory for uh, assessment. So in Tornado, we, we looked at this problem and, and we, we came up with a solution on, on how to solve it. And it was using a technology called OCT, which is Optical Coherence Tomography. OCT has been broadly adopted in ophthalmology and more or less changed ophthalmology about 15 years ago. It's used to image the back of the eye and you can do so, you know, non-destructively or without damaging the eye. So we took that technology that's ultra high resolution and we applied it to imaging tissue specimens. And in Tornado, we did a lot of, you know, early prototyping and feasibility testing to see, do we actually have something that's viable here? And like I said, in 2013, we got it to a point where we were comfortable saying, you know, we can really move this this technology forward. And we spun, myself and a couple of colleagues, we spun the technology out into and formed Perimeter Medical. And since then, we have successfully got the device through a number of FDA uh, submissions. Um, we have a, a commercial device that's, you know, on the horizon in, in the next year or so. And we are developing our AI algorithms at some of the leading cancer institutes uh, in, in the US. Awesome. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the AI aspect of this, if, uh, if we could, because I, th I think that's really interesting. Could you explain to what extent AI plays a role in this technology? Sure. Maybe I'll talk a little about the challenge of, of taking um, or removing, um, I'll talk specifically about breast cancer. When the patient comes in for surgery, the surgeon will know, for example, there's a one centimeter tumor in the left breast upper quadrant. So they will open up the patient and they'll go in and they will try to excise a healthy barrier of tissue around that one centimeter tumor. So if you could imagine, you know, cutting through an avocado and having the pit as the tumor and the healthy flesh, that's the objective so that you're totally encapsulating the tumor and you're not leaving any behind. Unfortunately, these tumors do not grow in perfect uh, spherical shape. They have tentacles and they have, you know, areas that grow out from the tumor. And the surgeon just can't see those. So a lot of the times they're cutting through areas of cancer unbeknownst to themselves. And what happens is that tissue gets sent to a pathology department. And they look at it under a microscope. If they find cancer cells at the surface of the tissue that has been removed, they have to call the patient back and bring them for a second surgery to remove more tissue from that area. So our device resides in the operating room and is used during the surgery. So the, the tissue comes from the patient. It's imaged on our device, on the Otis device. And then what we plan to do is apply machine learning algorithms or artificial intelligence to the data set to be able to show the surgeon if they have left cancer behind and where they need to go to remove it. So one of the reasons why we have had to go down the route of using AI is to identify those very small areas of disease. There's a lot of data that's needed at very high resolution to scan the images of these uh, excised specimens. So it takes a surgeon a, a certain skill set to be able to, first of all, read the images, but there's also a time burden where they would physically have to leave the patient and go over and look through this large volume of data. So by applying the artificial intelligence, it automatically looks through the data as it's being scanned and it highlights specific areas. The surgeon can then just walk over and say, oh, here's a, here's a suspicious region. I'll take a look at that and say, okay, yes, using my clinical judgment, that looks like something that I need to take more tissue. There will be a lot of instances where the machine learning algorithms will be applied to the, to the tissue volume and will say, we did not find any suspicious, suspicious areas, and that would allow the surgeon 
to close up the patient with confidence and knowing that the likelihood of that patient coming back for another surgery has greatly decreased. Mm -hmm. So is there much of a role that AI technology plays like before or after the surgery happens? Because you obviously mentioned that this uh, this is a process that happens during the surgery, correct? That's correct. I would say at this moment in time, there is not a huge amount of AI being applied, but it is it is 100% coming down the path. So when the patient is first having a mammogram, whether it's a, a, a an annual screening or whether they have found a suspicious lump through palpation, companies like DeepMind, who are um, acquired by Google a few years ago, Google Health, have been given access by the NHS in the UK to uh, I think about 100,000 of their breast mammography images for free. And, you know, the NHS, as it's a public system, has said to them, we're going to give you all this image data if you can develop algorithms that can help our radiologists be able to identify and detect cancers more efficiently, that would be of, of great value to us. Right now, what happens is if a woman has a, a, a breast mammography uh, image taken, it has to be checked by two radiologists. So by employing artificial intelligence, the AI machine learning algorithms will be able to identify a suspicious region. And then a trained radiologist could come in and, and look at just that data set. So you're reducing the burden on the on the clinical staff almost by 50%. So that definitely is where radiology is going along that pathway. Are we going to see radiologists completely removed from you know examining images? I don't see that in the foreseeable future, but maybe if we can get the sensitivity and specificity of these algorithms to be where they're actually better than the radiologist, then you know that day could come. And likewise, after the surgery, the tissue that's being analyzed in the pathology lab, we're starting to see a lot of progress in, in the artificial intelligence in space. What, what happens in the in the pathology lab is they make slides, like they, they cut the tissue into very thin slices and a pathologist lit, has to look at it under a microscope. Those slides can be fed into a uh, an imaging device that can create a digital image, and then that digital image can be fed into a machine learning algorithm. And again, it can pick out the most suspicious areas and send them to a pathologist. So in the case of a breast surgery, instead of having to look at 70 or 100 slides, now that breast pathologist might only need to look at 10 to 20. So again, it's reducing the burden of work on the clinician. And it also, you know, if the, again, if the accuracy of these algorithms is really high, you can see potentially an improvement in um, accuracy. For sure. Yeah, I can imagine. It seems like there's a reoccurring theme whenever we look at AI here and its role that it's playing in different areas of society, especially when it comes to health, because it seems that even though we get super excited of the idea of AI taking over roles, it seems that AI doesn't necessarily take over something entirely. It just assists humans in the role they currently do. Exactly. And I'm really happy to see that, like you said, you can reduce the workload for workers. So obviously they can take care of the more human aspects. And on top of that, it, if it reduces the number of surgeries that are needed for patients, then that's that's incredible because like this is a psychology technology podcast. And when I first thought about this topic, I was thinking, well, this leans very heavily on the technology side. But then I thought about it and I realized that this really does come down to psychology in the sense that these patients have to go through so much and to have constantly have repeat surgeries. That must take such an emotional toll. And I can imagine that by advancing this technology, then you're essentially 
making their lives easier or not necessarily easier but you're removing a burden which i can imagine not only physically but psychologically is a horrible burden to carry like the idea of constantly going back and forth for surgeries with cancer yeah you've touched on an incredibly important motivation behind developing the technology and that is reducing the emotional burden and stress on the patient on the families of the patient and friends and also on the people who are trying to treat them. I'll give you an example. It's at a very challenging time in anybody's life to be told that they have cancer. And some of these people have never had surgery before. So now they have cancer. And secondly, they're having to undergo something that is quite traumatic, even without being told that you have cancer, which is potentially the first time having a surgery. And you trust that your surgical oncologist is going to remove your cancer. And you go through your surgery, you're sent home and you're getting back to life. And the phone rings. And it's a very, very difficult phone call for that surgeon to make to say, number one, you still have cancer. And number two, you have to come back again for a second surgery. I know a lot of surgeons who really, really do not like having to make that phone call. It actually really affects them badly. And then on the, on the other end, could you imagine being the patient on the other end of the, of the phone who's receiving that information? It's incredibly traumatic. It's also incredibly costly to the healthcare system. And those dollars or, or pounds or wherever you are in the world could be put into other treatments and you know surgeries um, instead of having to bring them back for these repeat surgeries. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would love to hear like outside of like what you're working on. I know that you're probably surrounded by other experts working on AI and surgery, or at least you almost certainly have a better understanding of what AI and surgery is looking like on a broader perspective than I do. What are you really looking forward to seeing develop? Or is there anything else which is really interesting, which is happening, maybe not with um, Perimeter Medical, but like in other people you're talking to, or other things you've heard of, which you're really thinking, well, like AI is really going to do well in surgery there. Yeah, you know, when you talk about surgery initially, you know, everybody just pictures a surgeon with a scalpel in their hand. But there are so many other things that are going on at the time of surgery. There's so many people involved from circulating nurses to the surgeon to anesthesiologists. You know, I think there's a couple of roles that AI can, can really help uh, augment surgery uh, in a positive way. First way, which I think is probably not very obvious is, you know, in patient monitoring and even in supply monitoring. Patient monitoring, you know, helping anesthesiologists being able to monitor the patient more effectively. And if you had a database of, you know, hundreds or thousands of patients previously and certain medical conditions and patient profiles of patient's age and size and, and all of these different things, if they can be all fed into a, a computer system that can output information that can help the monitoring of a patient during surgery, I think that's one avenue that, you know, potentially in the future, we might see some advancements. There's also the basics of the inventory, you know, as you use a staple, you know, that could be tracked and, and automatically fed back into a system or every time that you use a new piece of equipment that can be all monitored so that, it, again, it re reduces the burden on the human and that they can spend more time with the patient rather than having to do more mundane tasks. I think in, in areas like orthopedics, where it's very, very hard for a surgeon to determine whether or not a hip or a knee replacement is successful at the time of surgery because they are so invasive and there's so much recovery time involved. It's not truly for maybe six months a year that they can really tell whether or not the surgery has been successful. So there's a couple of companies that I know. There's one here in Toronto called IntelliJoint that make uh, sensors that attach to the patient's leg that help the surgeon with alignment and help the surgeon with 
leg positioning and, you know, all of those factors that will potentially increase the accuracy of the, the, the joint replacement. And the more data that's put into those technologies like that, I think the better that they will become. And again, you will see at the output, you will see a better outcome for the patient in, in the long term. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, would you say that as AI becomes more prevalent in surgery, do you have any concerns? Um, I don't really have any concerns for the patient. And I, I tell you why, because anything that you re- you can use in, in an operating room needs to be regulatorily approved by the FDA or whatever the regulatory body is in the country that you're going to sell it. So the amount of evidence needed to develop, you know, artificial intelligence for something that's hardware based that would actually physically be removing tissue or or doing a surgical procedure, that burden of evidence is going to be incredibly high. And the FDA and regulatory bodies are going to need to see a lot of data to support companies who want to commercialize those technologies. I think the concern is how far can we actually really push AI and where does it become? What is the upper boundary of where it's actually useful? In medical imaging, it's very easy to imagine why AI can be helpful because you can have a machine that can be trained on a million, two million, five million medical images, or you can have a surgeon or a radiologist who has looked at it in their lifetime five to 10,000 of the same images. So that's a very easy thing to understand. But when you're in the operating room and you're removing a prostate cancer or you're removing, uh, you're doing a uh, pancreatic cancer removal surgery, there are so many factors and other things going on. And every patient is so uniquely different that it's, it's hard for me, even with somebody who has reasonably good knowledge in this space, to imagine where, you know, a sort of autonomous artificial intelligence robots could come in and actually perform those surgeries. Well, I got to say your your response initially has given me some reassurance, I suppose, in the future if, if I ever need to have surgery. Fortunately, I've never had any surgery and I'd like to keep it that way for as long as possible. Yes. But if I'm presented with an opportunity to have a robot do it, after that response, I feel slightly more reassured. Yeah. But I also find it funny. I was thinking about this the other day and I'm, I'm really happy to be alive at this moment in time because I feel that one day if I if I'm old I'm 26 right now but if I ever make it to like 80 or seven I've got grandkids I can imagine that perhaps perhaps that they might say to me like wow like when you were born like humans operated surgeries like they let humans do surgeries or yeah or they they let humans drive cars and I love the thought that from the moment I'm born like humans operate everything and then the moment I die, it'll be like, that'll be like the completely opposite way around. They'll be like, wow, they let humans, like, do you know about the error rate that humans have? Like, <laughs> Yeah. And you know, we, we, there's so many robotic surgeries that are taking place every day now, but it's still a human that's, that's, you know, manipulating these devices. One thing that I did think about, you know, in preparation for this is potentially removing skin cancers would be an area that you could automate that procedure. If you had an area of skin cancer on your arm, if you could imagine, you know, holding your arm very steady and, and an imaging device coming over and mapping out exactly where the surgical tool needs to come in and remove the tumor, the next part of the process would be a technology like what Perimeter has developed, images to make sure that all the tumor has been removed. And then the final step would be another device comes in and does the suturing automatically. And it's because it's, a, it's a not a very invasive surgery. You're not opening up the patient. You're not interacting with any other um, organs or vessels or anything like that. So you could see maybe it's being implemented in, in surgical settings like that, where it's much lower risk. 
Well, I, I hope so. Yeah, and I think that would be a good place to start, certainly. There's one more question that I'd love to put to you. And initially, I was interested to know how you made the leap from Ireland to the UK and then to Canada. But obviously, with your studying in the UK and your, your Canadian girl, it kind of wrapped it up. <laughs> but at the same time, I'd still be really interested to hear, like, you spent time in, in three different countries, like, studying this or understanding this um, this industry, really. Do you see a difference between the countries, like is like Ireland or the UK or Canada, do, do one of them stand above the other? And generally speaking, in like a global kind of setting, is there one country which is leading the way in this, like Canada, for example? I think at a research level, you know, there's, there's a lot of good research happening in the UK, Ireland and in, in Canada, particularly in, in photonics. There's a, there's a lot of work that's, that's spread out. Where I would say the difference is, is there's a much greater appetite with investors to support new innovations in North America over what you would see in Europe. And I think it's because the European system is predominantly a public healthcare system where, you know, that the American healthcare system, it's a business and hospital networks and systems are buying technologies because they want to be better than the hospital that's down the street for them. And they use that as, as advertising all the time. So there's much more of a market in the United States um, than there is, you know, it, that's the holy grail for our medical technology is to make it in the United mm. States. So it only makes sense that people are investing more in these early stage technologies in that particular region. So again, I think there's innovations that are coming out of all parts of the world, but I think to actually get those in innovations from the from bench top to beside the patient I, I think from a financial perspective it's easier to do it in in the north american setting yeah it's, it's a complicated issue for me because personally i growing up in the uk and i'm sure it's the same for you in ireland and obviously canada's pretty good at it too but i'm a big supporter i love the nhs and i'm a big supporter of the fact that it, it's a service that is so readily available and it's, it's it's helped me occasionally when i've needed it but at the same time i do recognize that capital does drive growth yep. and it does encourage competition so it does make sense that yep. like if you've got a setting like the US where it is a business and it is a competition then people are just going to strive that much harder versus oh this is a free service that we provide to, to the people so I'm incredibly conflicted there but at the same time the goods and bads to both of them I suppose yeah and you, you know when you speak about the NHS um, they have a very interesting program called NICE, N-I-C-E, and I don't know what the acronym stands for, but what that program is aimed at doing is if you can prove to this organization that your technology both improves patient care and reduces cost, they will fast track your technology through the system to get it into hospitals. So they will work with you at getting through all of the regulatory and early commercialization barriers that all of us uh, tech medical device innovators face, and they will fast track you because they see the patient is getting better and it's actually costing less money to the taxpayer. So, you know, programs like that are incredibly exciting for people to get involved in. And it's great to see public systems having that foresight to take those on. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I suppose at the same time, businesses and especially the NHS, no matter what, they're going to want to reduce their costs and improve quality. So if, if it achieves that end result, then fantastic. But not a lot of people probably know this, but the lifeline of, of future medical technologies is is within startup companies. Big companies like Philips and Siemens and those monstrous companies, they don't develop technologies anymore. They wait for people in their specific space to create something. And then when it's generating even moderate revenue, 
and they see that it's been a success, then they just come in and acquire. So looking into the future, supporting uh, early stage medical device companies is really important for the long term growth of the entire industry. That's good. Yeah, that innovation is necessary. And it sounds like they're kind of like VCs almost just like buying up or at least they've got the money. Exactly. And then they get they uh, they put the money where the good ideas are. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Andrew, that's those are all my questions for now. But I've really enjoyed this. This is something which, to be honest, like I have absolutely no knowledge about prior to this conversation. Obviously, I, I did some research and I had the 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 interest and the curiosity on the subject. But this has been, yeah, something completely new to me and I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for inviting me uh, to take part. And uh, I look forward to hopefully doing something again with you in the future. Fantastic. Good news. According to the Wall Street Journal, President Donald Trump is set to request a budget of $25.6 billion for NASA for its fiscal 2021 operating year. This increase represents one of the single largest proposed budget increases for NASA in the past 20 years. This new sum will almost be $3 billion more than the $22.6 billion budget NASA had for its current fiscal year, with the majority of new funding being used for the development of new human lunar landers. Thank you for listening. That's it for today. But if you like this and you want to hear more just like this, we have plenty more for you waiting at sociable.co. You can find all our podcasts there or you can follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, basically anywhere where you listen to your podcast, you can find us. Just search Brains Bike Back and we should pop up. And if you want to stay up to date with everything that we're doing here at The Sociable, then follow our newsletter, which goes out every Friday. It includes fresh episodes of Brains Bite Back, and you also get a selection of articles from us. You can find that by going to sociable.co and scrolling down on the right-hand side. You will see an option to add your name and your email, and we will send you all the best stuff that we have for you. Thank you for listening and take care. Now.